Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about the latest ideas from thought leaders in the area of optimal health, food, the science of mind-body interactions, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak to Hagen Schurter, the Chief Science Officer at Mars Edge, a segment of the well-known food company Mars Incorporated, dedicated to translating scientific insights and the outcomes of health and nutrition research into evidence-based applications. Hagen's interests focus on human health, personalized nutrition, and data-enabled innovation in nutrition and well-being. In the context of Mars Edge, he leads the biomedical investigations into the role of dietary flavanols, procyanidines, and other bioactive food constituents in nutrition and healthy aging. Based on his 25-year research interest in flavanols, he is the leading Mars scientific contributions related to the cocoa supplement and multivitamin outcome study, also known by its acronyms COSMOS. COSMOS, enabled by a public-private partnership, is a large-scale, large-scale meaning about 21,000 participants, investigator-initiated, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, clinical trietary intervention trial, assessing the long-term impacts of flavanols and multivitamins on health. I personally find the science around flavanols and other flavonoids of particular interest, and my lab is studying the effects of these plant-derived molecules on the brain-gut microbiome system. Welcome to the show, Hagen. So, um, Hagen, let me start with the, with the first question. Um, so polyphenols are an amazing group of molecules which um, function as the pharmacy um, of the plants uh, when, when you really look into it. Um, and some of which have also shown health benefits for, for humans. There's a lot of literature about potential health benefits based on in vitro studies. So this is a very exciting group of molecules. Why haven't they received more attention? I think you're right that uh, compared with the essential nutrients or the vitamins and minerals, uh, especially from the public perspective, there is far less awareness of polyphenols than there is for vitamin C or fiber. Um, I think that's true. With regard to the scientific community, I would say there is a significant amount of interest and that is even growing. Um, one of the proof points, so to speak, is there is a conference called the ICPH, the Conference of Polyphenols and Health, and that occurs every two years. And the conference really debates the current status of knowledge on polyphenols generally with regard to health, disease, health and nutrition, and other aspects of polyphenol research. And that normally has and it's an international, international global conference between five, six, eight hundred people. And it, it really brings together the people who work on this generally. So I think scientifically in the scientific community, there's high interest, but you're probably right. This hasn't fully translated to awareness uh, into the public on the same level as we would say vitamin C has. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of, maybe this is one of the reasons why, you know, that this sort of um, hasn't really reached the level. I mean, fiber right now is a really hot subject for gut health, even though, you know, fiber was a big topic uh, 40 years ago when I went to medical school. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's not a new thing. So fiber has been around for a long time. Um, but coming back to this, so, so there are many supplements being promoted as antioxidants. And um, even though the associate health claim is largely based on, almost exclusively based on in vitro studies um, or preclinical studies, um, how, how much of the effects of our body following the ingestion of natural polyphenols um, in plants that are containing plants and fruits is related to their antioxidant potential? And how much is likely related to other effects that we don't even under fully understand at the moment? I will give you an answer to this. Um, but before that, let me let me go back to your last comment, which was, you know, fiber has been around for so and so many years. It's actually interesting. So flavanols and what we today call flavanols has been around for a long time. And even in the Nobel 
acceptance speech, Nobel Prize acceptance speech of St. Gergi, as well as Emil Fischer, they actually mention the flavonoids. Mm. At the time, um, um, St. Gergi calls them vitamin P even. He is, he's looking at something he terms vitamin P that could be related to, um, to arterial function and endothelial function. And um, the term vitamin P later becomes more like a collective term for flavonoids. Mm -hmm. And even Emil Fischer in his one where he talks about stereochemistry, he talks about the sugars, but then he says, this is, this is not actually a single phenomenon on sugars. There is epicatechin and minus epicatechin. And he actually says it's probably one of the most widely abundant uh, pairs of these things that are available. So the flavonoids have gone a long way. I mean, they have been researched for a long time, but nevertheless, the statement is correct that the public awareness of this is low. But let me go back to your, to your comment on the, on the polyphenols and antioxidants. And if I would say polyphenols are known in the public, it is often because they are positioned as being an antioxidant. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that this is really misleading because although they are antioxidants in a test tube, um, and maybe even arguably in the digestive tract after you have eaten polyphenol rich foods, um, there's lots of evidence that would suggest that their role within the systemic circulation of it in the body outside the GI tract is not dependent on the fact that they have antioxidant properties. Mm. And I would say there are three or four lines of evidence that are quite interesting that would support this statement. The first one is their concentrations that eventually end up being present in the circulation are fairly low compared to what we know is an antioxidant. So compared to vitamin C or to urate or to enzymes and even the plasma proteins that have antioxidant properties, we are talking orders of magnitude lower. Mm. So you can already start to think, are they really acting as antioxidants if they are present at that low, con uh, low concentrations? On top of it comes that many polyphenols are subject to extensive metabolism. So when we think about the ADME, so the absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion of polyphenols, many have in common that they are extensively metabolized. And often the metabolism takes place around the hydroxyl group. So those groups that actually confer the antioxidant properties. Mm -hmm. So not just is it low concentration, but now we also modify those parts of the molecule that actually confer antioxidant properties if you look at it in the classic sense of antioxidants. And so that is another argument why this is unlikely to play a major role in vivo. And the third one is more direct evidence. We published a paper and I think it was 2016 in scientific reports and there we gave people C14 labeled epicatechin, one of the flavonol uh, polyphenols. And we could account for all the radioactivity we gave people and within that set of compounds, we could account for every single peak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And none of the peaks represented an oxidation product of epicatechin. So it could not have served as a antioxidant. That's really interesting. Yeah. Which is also an interesting argument that, yes, they are antioxidants in a test tube, but so are probably aspirin and paracetamol to some degree, but we don't say, take an antioxidant for a headache. Yeah. Um, another interesting observation in that context is that lots of these antioxidant related mechanistic insights came from cell culture studies in vitro. And until fairly recently, those papers published there did not really emphasize, I think sufficiently, the extensive metabolism that takes place. So the, the people that were using those compounds in vitro most often tested them how they exist in plants, but not how they exist in the systemic circulation. And in that context, I'm thinking about that most cell culture systems are already kind of pro-oxidant states. Mm -hmm. You could see effects that were verifiable and repeatable, but that actually are probably not that meaningful. And the scale of this effect is quite interesting because if I haven't done this lately, but there are thousands of papers that talk about individual polyphenols in cell culture, but there are only tens or a couple of dozens that use the actual metabolites that exist in humans in relevant concentrations in cell culture. And so the 
lots of the data on that underpin an antioxidant-based hypothesis come out of the historic use of this in cell culture systems, ignoring the ADME. So would you say, if I understood you correctly, that um, in, 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 in the plants, I mean, the plants make these polyphenols, do they work as antioxidants for the plant, you think? They have many, many functions. I think some of them may actually be truly the classic antioxidant functions. They are super interesting um, 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 data on polyphenols. And you know, when we say polyphenols, we are talking 20, 30, 60,000 compounds, depending on how many of the derivatives, different types of sugars attached, you would actually include in your calculation. And so they play a, a role in the kind of like repellent, repellents of repel to be eaten, repel uh, herbivores for being eaten. Mm -hmm. So many of them have been proven to be put into the bark or, or the, the, the structure of the plant because they interfere in, with the rumen bacteria in a way that herbivores stay rather away from them. Also other insects, herbivore insects are repelled by some of them. We can even see that when a tree has been, uh, so to speak, attacked by certain pests, that it upregulates certain types of polyphenols in order to maintain that. They also seem to be signaling molecules. There's an interesting papers in, in science where it seems that root systems extrude flavanols into the soil to repel other grasses to stay away from the root system of that specific type of grass. So it's, I think they have many interesting functions. Among them, I wouldn't be surprised if in plants, they do have antioxidant um, that that do have a role in antioxidant defenses, yes. Yeah, I should have asked you this this uh, this question at the beginning. Um, for people that are not familiar with this, so I mean, everybody's familiar with the term antioxidant, but it's sort of become almost like a household term, and so certainly in the social media, you know. Uh, but I mean, what are polyphenols? So I mean, what what kind of molecule or what, what kind of why? This, this name is kind of uh, intimidating, I think, for a lot of lay people. It sounds like something really exotic. So what, what are polyphenols? I mean, if you really go by the root uh, of the word, so polyphenols, meaning they have more than one phenolic group within their structure. Yeah? And uh, polyphenols is a huge umbrella term under which many families of compounds would cluster. One of the families um, that... I'm specifically be interested in is called the flavonoids. And the flavonoids then have subfamilies, the flavanones, the flavonols, the flavanols, and so on and so on. So there are other families of polyphenols that are not flavonoids that are also covered. So we are really talking about a very broad umbrella term. And then we in generally and then we generalize and say polyphenols are good for us or bad for us or there are probably polyphenols that are not that good for us, and there are others that may be beneficial to us simply because the term covers such a large group of people, of people, of compounds. And if they very rarely exist in nature as a glycone, so as the actual compound that you buy pure from some kind of a company, chemical company, in plants, they are often. Um, derivatized with sugars. So they, uh, they are glycosides of each other. Could be simple sugars, could be complex sugars. Um, it's very rare actually that polyphenols exist as aglycones, as, as non-derivatized compounds in plants. There's only one group that maybe only is too much. There's one group where this is actually quite often occurring. These are the flavonols. So they often exist as aglycones, but most don't. And why this is important, it's when you want to link back any type of research into the nutrition context, you, it is important to remember that to test or investigate the things that are actually part of the diet, not their parent compound. Mm -hmm. And until recently, it was for some of the polyphenols very hard to get actually the purified um, um, versions of the polyphenols as the existent plants. So the glycosidated versions. Mm -hmm. It was much easier to get the A-glycone. And so in many of past research of efforts, they were used in cell culture systems. So yes, so a lot of issues. Um, I mean, this has led to, I, I think that we talked about this in, in, in the past. At some point, the FDA put up this website, forgot what the name of it was, with all the, um, with all the antioxidants. And um, then at some point, had to take it down because he did that so many claims were made about the 
effects in humans and you know people that looked at actually blood levels found that they're almost non-detectable for many of them so so there was a time where this was something really popular also among supplement makers um but it's almost like seems like this this um this time of, of popularity has sort of gone down and it's gradually coming back now in a, in a much more scientific and differentiated a differentiated way you may, you may be right i mean the term polyphenols i think you see less and less as an umbrella term when we talk about consumer communications you you more you more see now specific groups called out flavanols mm -hmm. or or um, flavonols or other types of polyphenols but i think the broad use of the term, especially when it comes to products and supplements, it's probably not uh, off, as often used as it was in the past. However, I do think that the number of products that claim to contain polyphenols, which confer certain types of benefits to consumers, has increased. Mm. As more and more research activities um, have resulted in data that look really promising, um, more products um, have reached the market, I would say. So, um, you know, staying with, with, with the flavanols, um, um, which, as, as, as you just said, you know, they have been studied in, in terms of their health benefits based on your own research, which has been extensive in this area. Um, how, how good is this evidence that there, there's a health benefit for, for, for humans with the consumption? Yeah. So I would say if you start with polyphenols, the data set around the impact on health and nutrition of polyphenol intake is rapidly growing and it's also an interesting data set, but just to contextualize it, it is not as mature as the data sets that we have for the essential nutrients or minerals. Mm -hmm. It is still a very fast evolving area, but in, in, in many places not as mature. And often what is missing is data at scale mm -hmm. or long-term data. Mm -hmm. With regard to flavonoids, um, I would say that that data set among all the data sets that could cover polyphenols is one of the ones that is more mature. Um, we, there's multiple data for multiple people that show either in epidemiological investigations or in dietary intervention studies that there is a benefit, um, especially when it comes to cardiovascular health, so various aspects of heart health, so to speak. We have published a paper in 2006 in uh, PNES where we asked the question, is, is, the, is the fact that flavonols are in cocoa causally linked to the effects that we see when we study arterial function? And we, uh, we applied in this paper the Dale Hill criteria of causality and we exercised them through. And you can say that there was strong evidence that it is indeed the flavonols that confer some of the benefits we see when we look at modulation of arterial function. And what we looked specifically at was flow-mediated dilation, so a nitric oxide-dependent mechanism underlying arterial function that is really, really critical for health. And I, I think we have also now shown in, in healthy people and in longer-term studies that there are significant health benefits. But still, critics would say, what is lacking still is long-term investigations at the scale of the population, like we have for fiber, like we have for omegas and other nutrients. And this is, I think, where Cosmos comes in. And I don't know whether you are aware, Cosmos is this very large um, um, dietary intervention studies that is undertaken by scientists at the Brigham and Women Hospital and the Fred Hutch Cancer Center. And that actually is based on observing the effect of a flavanol intervention in 22, roughly 22,000 people for five years. And so that study should come out in the next couple of weeks, months. Um, and that would be the first time, I think, and I, I hope I, my, my collection is correct, that a polyphenol or a flavanol is tested at that scale. And hopefully it will substantiate and replicate some of the findings we made in shorter term and, and shorter scale investigations. Yeah, maybe this is a good point to, uh, you know, to, to let the, the listeners um, know that you, you have a sort of a unique hybrid position. So on the one side, you're the cutting edge of science, you're on many papers, um, key, key, key publications in this space, but, but you also, you know, have a commercial link with, uh, with the company Mars. So 
I, I think most listeners will not be aware of this, that you know, Mars has actually invested significant amount of money in this cosmos study. Um, how, how, I mean, how did you come to that, to that point that, that you um, are a very critical scientist and at the same time, you know, you've, you've worked for, 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 for a company that many people at first glance would not associate with, with health particularly. I mean, Mars um, is a privately held company and I'm uh, at the moment uh, serving as the chief science officer of a segment of Mars called Mars Edge. And we are really concerned with um, research and translating research into um, developing evidence-based nutritional products and solution and services for people in the health space. And so Mars um, has actually a very long history with regard to fundamental research uh, we were very many years ago, we, 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 we um, started to sequence Theobroma cacao as a plant when, when sequencing wasn't one of the things that you just do on a fly like we can do today. Um, we, we have projects that really range from coral reef rehabilitation all the way to material sciences with very sophisticated soft matter physics. Um, maybe it is not known, but Mars is, Mars is a company that that is actually has a tradition in health because we, part of Mars, are um, pet healthcare um, solutions. So we own pet hospitals. We, we, we have uh, many other things in, in this arena that is related to health and where you collect biomarkers, you link it to outcomes and, and, you, and you adjust diet, for example. And so I think that overall, this is probably not that known about Mars, but, um, I am um, working for Mars since, I don't know, 15, 16 years. And I was always part of the externally facing flavonol research program. And so we have done some super interesting um, research. I am based at the, at the lab of Mars, at the core lab of Mars Edge at the, at the University of California, Davis. And there I have an adjunct researcher position at the department. And it's a very interesting experience as a, as a uh, industry researcher, so to speak, to be based in an academic institute, you constantly cross the membrane between academia mm -hmm. and industry and vice versa, which is always super, super interesting. And I think um, depending on how you look at an issue from both sides, uh, it, it, it is very rewarding. I also believe that the large scale issues of health, whether this is healthy aging or whether this is food system under pressure of climate change, they can only be served when all sectors of society work together. So industry, academia, government, uh, alone, we cannot do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, sticking with, uh, with the, or staying with, with the topic of um, Mars and, and, you know, their interest in uh, chocolate products. Um, um, can you explain, I mean, like when you first, Told, uh, talk to me about this is when when you analyze what happens from the cocoa bean all the way down to the delicious Belgium, you know, or <laughs> um, European chocolate, what what happens during this process? So if, in other words, when you when you're a chocolate lover, particularly um, dark chocolate, uh, are, are you basically is this like a supplement of uh, flavon of health promoting flavanols that you consume? Let me let me start with saying that um, this is a long time ago that Mars got interested in this, and that was actually coming out of our flavor research program in the nineteen late nineteen eighties nineteen nineties. I wasn't a part of Mars at that time, and people wanted to understand how certain components within cocoa impact flavor, flavor precursors or otherwise flavor astringency. And uh, at that time, the analytical tools were developed to really analyze what is in cocoa powder and chocolate. And we, we discovered, uh, it was discovered that it contains flavanols and procyanidins. And that coincided with a, with a general increased interest into flavanols and, and procyanidins because of um, the French paradox, because of the whole the antioxidant story, people reported benefits in wine, benefits in, in tea, and we had similar benefits, uh, uh, similar compound, even at much higher concentrations in cocoa. And now you need to know that traditional cocoa 
traditional chocolate making deploys many processes that actually taken together eradicate most of the flavonols and procyanidins out of chocolate. So cocoa beans are harvested, they are then fermented, they are then, um, you then separate the cocoa solids from the cocoa butter in an, in an expeller process, you then alkalize, uh, and then you conch, and all of those processes involve heat, changes of pH, or oxidation-friendly methods that overall have the intent or have the consequence to remove flavanols and procyanidins out of this, out of, out of chocolate. So chocolate is not a reliable source of flavanols, not just because I think it is better for industry and for all of us not to position chocolate as a health food because it does have, uh, it should be a treat, it's delicious forever, but it is not because of its fat and sugar content, something that you should recommend to people daily because of its health attributes. Mm -hmm. And that has been Marsh's master's position for a long time now. We have, we have even written uh, an opinion letter to the, uh, to the FDA a couple of years ago. You can download it from online, uh, online from the FDA webpage. That was in the context of another industry player uh, wanting to apply for health claim for chocolate. And although we are very passionate about flavanols, we believe that the flavanols and their insights and cocoa in this context, they should be applied outside of chocolate. In, in food matrices that are really you know, tenable in the context of daily consumption with the goal of improving cardiovascular health, for example. So are there such sources, such uh, food sources, or do you have to go to supplements that would actually provide you with a health benefit? That, that is an interesting, uh, an interesting, very fast developing area about epidemiology. So we and others have done, have created maps around the world where we measured the intake of flavonoids, flavanols specifically of epicatechin even more specifically. And um, you can say from that research that there are certain parts of the world where the flavanol intake is very high compared to other parts of the world. For example, in countries with a tea culture, the intake of flavanols and epicatechin and gallated versions of epicatechin is far higher than in countries that do not have a tea culture. Um, in Germany, where I come from, the main sources of flavanols are palm fruit, so pears and apples and products derived from that, juices and things, but also berries. Um, and very interesting um, stories, there are certain populations in the world, like the Kuna Indians, who for cultural culinary reasons and others have a very high flavanol intake. And um, the problem, I think, that we realize with these kind of like data, set, data sets at the moment especially if you want to relate them to the disease burden in these populations, because the next question would be, oh, those people who have high intakes, do they see certain benefits because of disease risk, uh, the decreased risk for certain diseases? And here you come to an interesting uh, problem uh, challenge that has to do with how we derive flavonol intake data from self-reports. So when we, when we try to collect information about how much flavanols, how, what's the amount of flavanols people might habitually consume, you go and you use one of those tools like a food frequency, food frequency questionnaire, and you collect those data. And then those data are combined with a food content database where it says how much flavanols is in apples or rhubarb or whatever. And then you calculate what the intake is. Mm -hmm. and Recently, because of uses of sophisticated scalable analytics and sensors and devices, we realized how limited self-reported data actually are and how biased to some degree. Mm. And we also realized how limited our food content databases are. Because when you think about it, even on the same tree, apples may not have the same amount of flavanols. And when you then uh, think about different varieties, harvesting and storage condition, different food preparations, and then the person on the other end, different microbiome, different whatever, you can imagine there's a lot of ambiguity when we go and say, let's just ask, what did you eat last week? And use these food content databases to calculate that. And that ambiguity is probably, or this, this unsharpness is probably too large to have very clear and meaningful links into diseases, which we can very specifically analyze. And so we, we, we and others are creating these methods that are scalable, where you can really say, can we objectively find out, let's say based on a urine sample or on a plasma sample. And so we and others have created these things that are called biomarkers, objective biomarkers of intake, where you can measure a certain thing in the gut and the plasma. And um, 
and then relate back to what was the flavonal intake, independent on all these differences around analytics and self-reported and preparation and culinary whatever preferences. And the interesting thing um, is that one, one of our biomarkers of, of intake that, that we have taken all the way to an accreditation as being a biomarker is actually derived by the gut microbiome mainly. So the gut microbiome takes epicatechin, transcatabolizes it, if you will, into a gamma valerolactone. That gamma valerolactone is absorbed. The human body then metabolizes it by sulfation. And so that gamma valerolactone sulfate or the gamma valerolactone glucuronide as then excreted in urine is actually a very, very good biomarker for estimating people's intake of flavanols. So, I mean, that means, um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's two follow-up things. So one is you mentioned the microbiome, I want to ask you a couple of questions, but, but that also means that most of the studies up to date uh, have not used this technique, the biomarker technique, that you have to look at them with a lot of skepticism, like you cannot really. Um... I, I think in nutrition, without these studies, we wouldn't be where we are without these observational studies to do it the way we did. There was tons of value in it and we wouldn't be where we are today. But going forward, we also need to understand what the limitations are. Yeah? And they are now in really fascinating papers. So the more cardiovascular risk factor you have, the less, the more biased you may be in, in how you report out your diet because constantly your family, your doctor, others tell you eat in this way and don't eat in that way. And when you then report out, you may just report out more bias towards what you're supposed to eat than what you actually eat. And there are beautiful studies on fat and sugar intake that show that. And as I said, the complexity also with regard to food content databases is, is, is not small to overcome and to therefore pivot and say, can we do that? in another way uh, is important. And I think at best we should use the other way to validate our position that we derived by, by the traditional uh, mm. mode of action. I would say that in many cases probably will, will lead to a re, re-describing the insights that we mm -hmm. gained mm -hmm. uh, the traditional way. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Um, 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 let me let me let me come back to this to this point about the gut microbes. So, w when I first got interested in the in, in the polyphenols, it was because of my long-standing interest in the gut microbiome, and um, I just found that idea fascinating. That just like other large molecules that are non-absorbable in the small intestine, they they move down the small intestine to probably to the uh, second half of the ileum, but also to get into the colon and then are broken down by, or catabolized by, by microbes into smaller absorbable components and molecules. But the way I understand it is, um, so there are certain enterotypes, not, I mean, we, we, we're so different from each other in terms of our microbial composition, particularly at the, um, at the strain level, that only about 10% are shared between individuals. Um, is there a big variation in terms of how, so let's say you take 100 people, they all eat the same amount of um, a flavonoid or flavonoid-rich food. Is there a big difference between these 100 people of how much of these metabolites that you can measure in the blood or in the urine uh, are being produced and actually get into the systemic circulation? That is a complex question because of the fact that I think we are just starting to really investigate this sufficiently deeply and at scale. But what I would say is this, if you, I would generally, because of the interactions between food intake and the microbiome, I mean, the microbiome by, to some degree gets shaped by what you eat. Therefore, if you, if you ask the question, can an intervention cause changes at the microbiome? So um, I measure your baseline, I then intervene and then I measure your microbiome, it is very likely that you will see a difference in your microbiome. The question then is, is that meaningful when it comes to health? I don't know whether this is always the case. In the context of, in the context of um, if you reduce the question down to, are there producers and non-producers of certain metabolites, which is often a question that people ask. There is a group of polyphenols called the isoflavones. And that's a classic example where people have shown a metabolite called equal, which really appears to be 
um, splitting people into non-producers and producers. And, and people have thought about what this may mean when we investigate the uh, health effects of isoflavone intake. They are often um, um, present among other sources in, uh, in soy products and tofu. Um, but going to flavanols, we haven't seen something like that. And we have now data sets of the scale of EPIC, so a couple of 10,000s of people. We do see that some people have higher or lower levels. Is that now intake related? Is that microbiome related? Needs to be really crystallized out. But a clear cut like Equal, 30% of people do not have that metabolized. We did not see. We clearly see that there's an age related impact. Um, and it seems like the older the person, um, the more likely they are to belong to the lower producer groups. And maybe that is related to the metabolic turnover. Like in every other organ system in the body, age means often that you have less metabolic mm -hmm. turnover. Maybe that is also true for the microbiome. I don't know. The question that would be also interesting, can a dietary intervention reshape that? So let's say you are a person with low on your habitual diet. If you were to change, would you change uh, your microbiome and or your, your for example, valerolactone production? Mm -hmm. This is all being investigated at the moment. Um, we have, so Cosmos at the scale of Cosmos that could be investigated because we are um, 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 collecting, um, um, the Cosmos investigators are collecting um, plasma and stool samples as well as uh, urine samples where you could actually ask that question. At the moment, I, I know about the data set from Epic Norfolk and Epic Cambridge where we did, we are talking 50,000, 30, 50,000 people where we can't see some clear-cut non-producers producers. So it's a more complex and evolving issue. Okay. Um, so, um... So for, for a lot of listeners, they, they walk away from this and say, this is such a complicated uh, area, you know, with, with fiber, we know a lot more, it's, it's a straightforward, we need to have, a, uh, you know, a varied plant-based diet, which provides us with as many possible fiber molecules. Um, so if you're on a healthy diet, and for me, healthy is, I'm biased in that direction, a largely plant-based diet, not necessarily exclusive, but um, with, with, with all these factors, these variabilities, these different types of apples are the apples that we have the highest taste preference, the sweet ones, are they low in polyphenols? And um, is, there, is there a rationale for people to take a supplement in addition to such a healthy diet that would provide them with a, with a constant amount of uh, you know, flavonols or flavonoids, for example? I personally think there is uh, uh, a lot of evidence in support of flavanols, and there are maybe other categories that I'm less familiar with, uh, where people should consider, uh, you know, should I try to increase my, my dietary intake? And I personally think these compounds are valuable constituents of the diet. Yes, they are not essential nutrients, but they risk modulate um, diseases like cardiovascular disease risk, for example, and they improve uh, um, arterial function. And the data that exists out there may not be today at the scale where they justify a dietary recommendation, but that is a very high bar. Mm -hmm. Dietary recommendations, are they, they require a data set where you really show at scale benefits across the population. But I do think we have benefits to, we have data today that show for specific groups of people real benefits. And in my mind, it is really worth thinking about, should I increase my, um, my flavonoid intake? And I would actually argue you should. And mm -hmm. then there's always two ways. You can try to do this via diets. Mm -hmm. You can go for foods that are rich in flavonols. And as I already mentioned, they would, would be any, any often fresh vegetables and, and, and fruit is always recommended. So, but in terms of flavonols, it would be tea and grapes and berries and palm fruit and, and, and whole grain and, and these kind of things, yeah. Um, but of course, you can also opt for a supplement. And I think that's more like a, a personal choice. Why is it that so many people um, feel that they need a supplement is probably because they don't wanna go for the effort mm -hmm. or in their lifestyle and their, their daily routine, it is hard to incorporate this. And so there's always supplements to consider. With a supplement, as you said, you do have the benefit of, of, of knowing exactly how much per day you take. But 
until this is translated into a dietary recommendation or a dietary guidance statement, but some kind, but by some kind of an accredited um, organization, I think consumers will be left uh, in um, by trying to understand this themselves or talk to their nutritionist or doctors or make up their own mind because what is out there. But as you say, the complex the story is complicated. Yeah, I I want to go back. Um sort of getting towards the end of our uh, conversation, but I want to get back to this. Are there regional and geographic differences in, you know, flavonoid or flavanol intake in the US and, and, uh, and around the world? And, um, you know, which country has the highest flavanol intake, for example? And is this reflected in any um, objective health benefit? Like one thing that always comes up, you said cardiovascular risk, um, but also cognitive decline, early cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, um, as I said, it is it is it is already tricky to with with the with the lens of twenty twenty two to link self reported dietary assessments against diseases that has its limitation. Yeah, and and, and I tried to um, allude to this earlier, but. Are there regions in the world which have higher flavonol intake? Yes, for example, Japan and, uh, and, and countries with a tea culture. Um, does this then relate to health? But we are now in a more tricky environment because there are not many data sets that looked at objective biomarkers of intake. Mm -hmm. But if you choose one, um, then we published a paper, I think it was sometime last year, where we looked at the, at, uh, to, we collaborated with Epic Norfolk and we looked into is there something where you say, if I use an objective biomarker of intake, is that, for example, related to blood pressure? Mm -hmm. And we could see that. So when you compare those in the cohort of EPIC, which is a 20-year follow-up study of tens of thousands of people, yeah, and some of them had urine samples that we analyzed and objectively evaluated. So those that have uh, a high valerolactone urinary level, indicative for habitually high flavonol intake, the 10% highest versus the 10% lowest, you see a difference in blood pressure as well. Mm -hmm. But these type of data set do not yet exist for objective biomarkers of health in, in, in many instances. This is not the only paper, other people have worked on that. But if you go back to the more traditional approach, there are instances where you would say that, um, those people with a higher flavonol or flavonoid intake are less at risk for cardiovascular disease or age-related cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is then always, what is the causally related factor? Is it truly the flavonols or are the flavonols just a bystander? I.e., if you eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, is the actual causally related active really the flavonols or something else or a combination of multiple things? Yeah, yeah. And that is... That is um, um, uh, yeah, that is to be untangled. But in general, you can say, if you measure somebody's diet quality, let's say you use a tool that is called the Alternative Healthy Eating Index. If somebody has a high Alternative Healthy Eating Index, that means they eat very well as compared to the dietary guidelines, they also have a high flavonol intake mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because the dietary guidelines already say eat a lot of plant-based foods and foods and, yeah. and and i think here it's not the fact that this is plant-based which is important but the dietary guidelines also point out variety mm -hmm. eat variable var um, eat food that is has a lot of variety of, of, of inputs and um but then deriving causality from that is a different it's a different topic but do you think that, um, so one, one viewpoint that I take and promote um, after listening to you that, you know, there's a lot of question marks uh, in that, um, <clears throat> but if you want to do something for your health, eating a largely, um, largely plant-based diet with a high variety uh, will give you two major benefits. One from the fiber that you take in and the variety of fiber molecules which would increase the diversity of your gut microbiome. Um, and that's high in a, in a, in a variety of uh, polyphenol containing foods. Um, and that those two groups are the main determinant of the health benefit of your diet. Do you, do you think that's exaggerated based on our current knowledge or? 
Well, that depends. I would say that uh, because, you know, I already struggle with polyphenols as the term because there are so many, some of them may not have any health benefits. Some of them may, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but um, if, if I come to the same question from a different direction, you know, the dietary guidelines say eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. And then people say, which ones? Mm -hmm. And we then try to find shortcuts by saying, look at the colored ones, mm -hmm. or at the seasonable ones, seasonal ones, or what we, we try to help people that it doesn't end up being bananas and potatoes, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. which are also plant-based foods. But if you would only eat those, uh, you will not get yeah, yeah, yeah. what you need. Um, if you actually deploy that, let's say you eat the colored ones, you will have a lot of flavanols because, or, or polyphenols, because many of the colored ones are actually colored because of polyphenols. Yeah. Um, and so do I think that the first statement that you made, which is eat a variable diet on fruit and vegetables, because this comes with multiple benefits, one of them being fiber, some of them being some polyphenols. Yes, I, I would say that, but I wouldn't be more specific than that simply because the work really hasn't been done. Can you show that certain polyphenols like flavanols confer specific benefits, for example, uh, when it comes to arterial function, arterial health? Yes. Is that true for all polyphenols? Probably not. Okay. Yeah, let me ask with a with a question may not be related to um, to flavonoids at all, but um, so something that you know is 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 known about the lay public and about um, chocolate lovers that that women in generally um, have a greater affinity to chocolate. Um, uh, I can tell this from my wife. You know, when we have. <laughs> we have chocolate at home. She will definitely eat the majority of, of it. Um, <clears throat> is is this um, this preference? I mean, we, we've talked about this before. Is this preference in any way related? Do you think to specific chemicals or molecules, even polyphenols? Well, we know now there's not that many polyphenols left in the in the processed chocolate, but. Um, what what molecules do you think that is related to? Or do you think it's more cultural or? Uh... I mean, that's a super interesting question. And people have really uh, researched in, into this. I don't even know whether it is true that it would be generally women. I, I, I haven't seen these type of data sets, but people ask the question when you have these affinities, what could be in these foods, especially chocolate? And there were multiple hypotheses. Um, and uh, in, in a certain way, if you zoom out, anything that that uh, would make you like the chocolate more could either be because it contains some flavors or some orosensory things that trigger something in the central nervous system that, that helps you appreciate and like this more. It could be that it contains compounds who themselves go enter mm -hmm. the CNS and have these effects systemically. Mm -hmm. Or it could be something which is kind of a psychologically acquired response when you were a child and something went wrong and your granny gave you some mm -hmm. chocolate and said, there, 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 everything will be fine. That as an adult, you revisit these kind of good feel moments. Mm -hmm. And so people have tried to dissect, and it's not just true for chocolate, for other foods as well, uh, these kind of things. And in candidates that were investigated in the context of chocolate specifically, were the anandamides. Anandamides are endocannabinoids that are created by our, by our body. And, um, and, because they are endocannabinoids, people said, okay, so that might explain why people really feel pleasure eating chocolate. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is that when you really try to uh, disentangle this association by asking, would oral intake of anandamides cause that? There's, we don't have evidence that this could happen. So orally consumed have not anandamides have not been shown to cause the same thing mm -hmm. and then it's, it's a funny game you can also say okay there's two orders of magnitude more anandamides in milk than there is in in chocolate and and the same uh, do do the same people that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. portray themselves as chocolate lovers say that they are also um, milk lovers i don't know another interesting compound is called salsolinol and salsolinol is a condensation product of dopamine and acetaldehyde. And in the past, it was kind of the association between the urinary excretion of uh, salsolinol and alcohol addiction was in the past hypothesized to be related. And when then later it was found out 
that chocolate contains salsolinol, people mm -hmm. say, ah, there we have it, now we know. Mm -hmm. But again, here, when you really dive into the data, um, orally consuming salsolinol is not related to the kind, these kind of things. It's a biomarker maybe of alcohol addiction, but it doesn't maybe, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily a driver of the effect. And again, here, uh, your culprit would be bananas who are like, three, four orders of magnitude having more salsolinol than, um, than chocolate or other foods. Mm -hmm. And you could go down the, the list and chocolate often, uh, what people then say is biogenic amines. Mm -hmm. But there again, the causality statements are not so easy and you have many more in other fermented, they come from fermentation and other fermented foods like cheeses or beer. Uh, it's very hard to make this. And then you reach very quickly the methoxanthine, so caffeine and theobromine. And of course, we know that they truly do have impact on the central nervous system. Yeah. And then you reach also compound classes like the flavanols. And, uh, and here, there are data about the fact that certain cognitive functions like memory are positively impacted by flavanol intake. But again, Cosmos will test it at scale. And so I'm looking really forward to the outcomes of the study. Uh, and we will all be really super interested what this shows at scale. But at smaller scale, um, like three, four months intake, two, three, 500 people, we do see uh, beneficial effects of flavonoid intake on, on, on cognitive decline and memory. Fascinating conversation. I mean, you know, it could go on for hours, even though we already have exchanged our opinions and I've gotten your amazing insights into the spe you know, specifics of, 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 of this field. Um, are you, last question before we, before we end this, um, based on your research, have you changed anything in your diet and your lifestyle um, from what you know about this field, particularly the polyphenols? Um, and what is that if you have cha made changes? So I have made lots of changes to my lifestyle um, because of my work, but my work is not only polyphenol. So I'm also looking at new other technologies like sensors and devices, for example, at the moment, um, the continuous glucose measuring devices. And what this tells you, not, I'm not a diabetic, so I'm not researching them or investigating them in the context of treating diabetes, but how can a normal healthy person, if they would have insights on how they react to intake of carbohydrates, change their lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And on the next call, instead of sitting on the chair, you just take walking and you already make a huge impact. With flavanols, yes, I do take flavanols and I do recommend them and give them to all of my family members, yes. <laughs> right. uh, so that, that, is, that, that is true and I admit that. Yeah, I, I think that brings us to the end. Uh, really fascinating conversation, um, and I hope we can continue this in the in, in the future and in collab in a, in, a, in a collaborative way. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find that absolutely um, eye-opening because many things that you addressed and we addressed in this conversation are not in the knowledge base of, of, of many people, both scientists and consumers, I think. So thank you very much, Hagen.